2: Just before we start today's show, I should tell you about our new sponsor. It's going to be our sponsor for the next couple of months here on Mid-Atlantic. It's Flick. And what Flick do is they have an app. And it allows you, the listener, to chat with other listeners of this podcast. Quite simply, to go and download this app to your smartphone, go onto the show notes of this episode. You'll see a link. Click on that link. It will then download an app to your phone, which then connects you to the world of Mid-Atlantic listeners. Now, not only can you chat, create your own topics and respond to uh, people's comments about U.S. and U.K. politics. We can also listen to the show, so it basically acts as an, an app for the podcast. So go onto the show notes, download the Flick app, and enjoy.
1: Podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. Alright. Yeah I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem.
2: Brexit means Brexit. My
3: administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country.
2: Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I am Royfield Brown, who's in Dubrovnik, bedept by a cloudless blue sky and semi-naked Germans absolutely everywhere. Now, today we are joined by um, author, writer, bon vivant, man in a Hawaiian black shirt, Doug Levy in the San Francisco Bay Area, and by journalist... An all-round lovely person and pundit Emma Burnell in London. So hello, folks.
4: Hiya.
2: In a week that is seeing the US women's soccer team—I can't believe I said soccer, football team, football, football team, <laughs> football <laughs>
4: rifle. What's happened to you?
2: I. Know. Oh my god, I've gone <laughs> native. <laughs> Knock out the plucky English in the semi-finals of the Women's World Cup. We ask: Should we pay attention to the campaign of Kamala Harris?
0: And I'm going to now direct this at Vice President Biden. you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. So I will tell you that on this subject, it cannot be an intellectual debate among Democrats. We have to take it seriously. We have to act swiftly. As Attorney General of California, I was very proud to put in place a requirement that all my special agents would wear body cameras and keep those cameras on. Senator Harris, thank you. Vice President Biden, you have been invoked. We are going to give you a chance to respond. Vice President Biden.
5: mischaracterization my position across the board i did not praise racism
2: harris 54 was born in oakland to immigrant parents her mother is originally from india while her father is from jamaica Ooh, great country to be from um she graduated from law school and she was the deputy district attorney before serving as the district attorney for the city and the county of san francisco she became the first African American and the first woman to become California's attorney general a position she held until 2016 she ran to represent California in the US Senate she's California's first African American senator the country's first South Asian American senator and if she secures the democratic nomination for 2020 she'll be the first African-American woman to be a major party's nominee for president. Doug, why is everyone talking about her at the moment?
3: She has been uh, able to establish for the rest of the nation to see what we in California had already seen when she was attorney general. She is tough. She is smart. She's able to ask pointed questions and drive right to the heart of just about anything. And we got to see that on full display during the Democratic candidates' debate last week. Emma,
2: what does she actually stand for? Because looking at her track record, her record as being the Attorney General for California, she was hardly some um, let's-look-at-the-causes-of-crime type of Attorney General. She was kind of slightly of the lock-em-up grade. Um, She has the optics... Of being obviously a woman and a woman of colour, but actually she's to the right of centre of the party, isn't she? What does she stand
4: for? Well, I'm not sure she's to the right of centre. She's not as far right or centrist as Joe Biden, for example, um, but she's probably, I mean, she's, but she's not as far Elizabeth left Warren, as Bernie though, or Elizabeth Warren. Mm-hmm. Um, she's somewhere in the middle, but I think it's worth remembering how difficult it is to be a woman and a woman of colour coming through that career at that age. And the fact that, frankly, she probably has to do a lot of things that other that people with the privileges of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren wouldn't have done, because in order to make it in that career, she had to take certain stances and be certain and to do certain things. And when she did stand up, as she talks about in the debate, for example, um, going against Obama when she was um, DA on some of the stuff he did on immigration, it's a much harder stance to take when you are having that ingrained. Prejudice against you so I think it, it's yeah there are structural challenges that make it a lot harder for a black woman to challenge for the presidency of the United States from the same position that say an Elizabeth Warren or a Bernie Sanders could do so from
2: Doug what are those structural challenges within the Democratic Party and its apparatus that a black woman will face we're not talking about the wider American uh, general voting electorate just within the Democratic Party and its electorate.
3: Well, it's a matter of political power. And as we saw in the 2016 election, uh, the entrenched power is quite powerful. And at the moment, the Democratic Party is not particularly well organized, or so it seems. That may go in Senator Harris's favor. But To win the nomination, she is going to have to persuade the folks that essentially control the purse strings of the party that she can win. And that's a tall order.
2: But didn't you just raise $2 million off the back of that performance? So... Can she not circumnavigate some of the party grandees, uh, so to speak? And where exactly is the party establishment? Let's take Biden completely to one side just for now. But in terms of issues, what are the issues that the uh, the establishment of the Democratic Party are actually behind for twenty twenty? Why don't you answer that, Emma?
4: Uh, well, first of all, to go back to my earlier point, it wasn't necessarily the structural challenges to her getting the nomination once she's already mm-hmm. an attorney general. It's getting to the point where she could be noticed uh, and that took being attorney general and being an attorney general who was considered successful across the piece enough so that she was considered a safe enough a pair of hands to be allowed to be a senator, to get selected by the people who pay for that. So it's it's, more, it's not like, oh, my God, we're suddenly in this moment here that the structural challenges kick in. They kicked in when she came straight out of law school. They kicked in before she went to law school. Yeah, this is what I'm talking about. So yeah, the idea that you can compare her record directly against somebody who hasn't faced those challenges, I think is a little unfair. That's the point I was making. In terms of the, what does she have to do to convince, as Doug says, I don't think the Democratic Party speak as one mind. There is a persuasion that some from external to the party, like Bernie Sanders, or on the left of the party, might want you to think that they do, because then their candidate gets to be seen as the challenger. And that's a uh, an attractive narrative in a change election. What she had to do was prove that she could, frankly, smack around an old white guy in a debate, um, which is why she suddenly raised all the money, because what she did very well at that debate was prove that she could take on an established figure in such a way that both was a very, very singing attack, but also didn't overly harm the party. And I think she did that, Yeah, you know, she threaded that needle really well and people have been, you know, she was the standout performance of the debates and, and for that reason.
2: Uh, Doug, Harris and Elizabeth Warren made gains after the first Democratic presidential debate, according to new CNN polls. So the poll conducted after the two nights of debate finds that Biden is on 22 percent, Harris at 17 percent, Warren at 15 percent and Bernie Sanders at 14 percent. Nobody else in the 23 person field uh, got over 5 percent. First off, Doug, whatever happened to Cory Booker?
3: You know, Senator Booker is... an interesting puzzle. He had the potential to be a front runner. I think many of us have been looking at him as um, not just a rising star, but truly somebody who had earned his place on the stage. And Mm -hmm. he's not gotten much traction. It's possible that it's because he has made the tactical decision to focus on the positive and and avoid directly going after president trump i'm not sure that works right now at least among the people paying attention it might make sense mm. for the long run but who knows
2: okay so let's go through these numbers again so biden is at 22% he's the establishment right of center we don't need to burn the house down uh we can just tinker with things around the edges wing of the party um, Seventeen percent is Senator Kamala Harris. Fifteen percent is I've got uh, a policy position for that to the left of the center, but I'm not a Democratic Socialist, Elizabeth Warren. And then we have died in the wall, old Senator Bernie Sanders, who is I am a Democratic Socialist. Nothing wrong with saying that. At fourteen um, percent, l- looking at those figures and doing some quick quick maths. Um the two respondent the two respective wings of the party are somewhat in equilibrium. Um is this going to make for- is this a battle for the soul of the Democratic Party going forward? Is that what we're looking at, uh, Emma?
4: I think every time you have one of these battles that's how it's pitched. Um where well, it was pitched that way with Obama versus Clinton and now they're just seen as almost exactly the same thing um you know once the once the um outrider becomes the president then they are by definition the establishment um so i think that that you're always going to have establishment versus anti-establishment the democratic party used to be more left then it became very centrist particularly under clinton um uh, clinton bill um mm-hmm. and it it's always you know uh, you think back I mean I don't think back cuz I'm not old enough but you think about the battles in the 60s and 70s about who would be the front runner and you know you had some very very left wing candidates there that came very close um so it's uh I think that's always how it's twas ever thus and ever thus will be um I think that there is a really interesting conversation going on at the moment uh, between what is considered electability and what is considered change. I think, frankly, it's not the right conversation. Uh, It's kind of a dumb conversation. We we try to second-guess voters too much when Mm. we talk about electability rather than simply having a real strength and passion for a platform which is actually much more electable than just trying to go, well, I think this is what you want. Here Have what here has some watered-down version of what we think you want.
2: That's the lesson of Bernie Sanders in the last uh, Democratic campaign, wasn't it? It's a case of I am a man of my convictions. Um, I, I believe this stuff for the last 20, 30 years have been saying the same thing. You've, In effect, the American public, or at least the Democratic base, or a section of it, has come round to my way of thinking.
4: Yeah, I mean, De- uh, Bernie Sanders was an in- has been an incredibly successful in changing the Democratic Party and in-, in taking the issues that he cares about and putting them on the table. Um, I don't think, by the looks of things, he's going to be the successful nominee this time, but who knows? Um, I mean, there are two reasons I say that, partly because he and Biden had just complete name recognition at the beginning of this process so they kind of started with little headroom mm-hmm. and he's gone down as a, as Warren has gained and in some ways that Kamala Harris has done the same thing to Joe Biden and the other reason that i can't see sanders doing it is because he's just trying to do the same, same stick second time And that I don't change my mind thing is great up to a point. But you've also got to speak to the moment that you're in rather than just speaking to the things that you've cared about for 40 years.
3: Well, and he he has changed on some things like he's not so offended by people uh, having a lot of money in the bank now that he's officially a millionaire himself. And he's not a Democrat.
4: Yeah, I mean, that is a key thing that would bother the hell out of me.
3: He's still affiliated as an independent. So why is he even in the mix? Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: that, that is something which is weird for us on the outside looking, looking in at this, that you can have somebody who can run to be, in effect, the lead of, of a party. Uh, in anything but name, but not actually be of that party. But uh, that's, that's that's what one of these uh, quirks of American exceptionalism. So we'll just pass on that for now. But uh, there's a 10-point decline in support for Biden since the last poll, which means that Harris has posted a 9-point increase and Senator Warren has uh, had a, a similar kind of increase. Um, does Uncle Joe have the energy for this campaign, Doug? It seems to me that he's too
3: old and too white. I don't think either of those is the case. And having covered Senator Biden way back when he was on the Capitol on Capitol Hill, um, you know, Mm -hmm. the man is um, a dedicated public servant. He knows a lot about issues and how to solve them. What is confusing or 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 at least vexing is. Doug. Doug, just just whilst we're here,
2: just whilst we're here. Obviously, Senator Joe Biden has been around the American political system forever. And I mean that in a possible and in in a positive way. Not that he's, you know, uh, stinking out the room. I don't mean that at all. He's somebody with deep convictions and he has his blue collar credentials. Um, What would you say is will be his his singular legacy? Let's say if he doesn't win the nomination to be the Democratic uh, Party's nomination for president nominee for president, sorry. Other than being uh, vice president, what would be Joe Biden's legacy in your eyes?
3: Unfortunately, I think that his uh, he will be most known for chairing the Anita Hill hearings that led to the uh, uh, elevation of Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court. Um, and I think part of what is really vexing a lot of people right now about Biden is that as smart as he is, how experienced as he is, he doesn't seem to quite have the right notes when he's talking about his record. Uh, I think most of us are, are perfectly willing to accept that people's views change, and a lot of times when you look back on what you did, you wish you'd done things differently. He has somehow not found the right way to communicate about things that made sense at the time that don't look so good in the rearview mirror. And as a result, he's defending his record more than talking about what should be happening in the future. That's a problem. Uh, Emma, but isn't Uncle Joe's
2: strength about the fact that he has this great way of communicating to white working class Americans?
4: But he's not actually communicating very well. That's the problem. I mean, Biden doesn't seem to understand the race he's in. And this is not the first time that's happened to him. You know, he's tried a few times to, to get the nomination and failed. And it's because he implodes. My understanding is that he was warned off doing this by people who just knew that this is how it would end up being. Um, he, he must have known. He must have looked at the field of candidates and looked at the moment we're in in 2019 and thought, what questions am I going to get? And how do I answer them? And he just doesn't seem to have thought that through to the, or, and doesn't seem to have employed the people to give him the right answers even, to have good answers to those questions. So the busing stuff, you know, that, that answer was so weak. Uh, you know, he actually made a states' rights answer, which is just insane. In that room, at that time, for this audience, are you mental? Um, sorry, I probably shouldn't use that phrase, but there you go. Um, there's a piece with Anita Hill where, her, you know, Joe Biden has said repeatedly, "I would be happy to apologize to Anita Hill," and she's like, "Well, I'm still waiting, because you haven't." <laughs> hmm. um, yeah, they're, they're just—he just doesn't seem to have given this. It, and the problem is, is that in the embody, in the body of an old white man, just looks so like entitlement.
3: He's running a 1980s campaign in 2019. Yeah, yeah.
2: Fair point. Kamala Harris beat him up, as Emma said, on this line about busing. Um, So she's a prosecutor. She's combative. She's very good at debating, very good at arguing. But what does she actually stand for, Doug? She's for a 15-hour minimum wage. But then again, which Democrat isn't going to be? She's kind of flip flop doesn't really have a strong policy position on private health care in terms of scrapping it. Though she says she's for universal health care. What does she stand for? Other than just the optics looking great. It's a woman, it's a woman of color. What does she stand for? What are her policy positions?
3: She actually was quite strong on some policy issues as attorney general. She did a lot of important work uh, both on criminal justice reform and on uh, police reform and supporting the police. Um, I think you know, the police unions may have a slightly different opinion, but um, she uh, made it pretty clear what was important to her at the time and, uh, and stuck to it. She is a progressive uh, in, in the truest sense um you know certainly towards the left wing of the party but she's you know, she won the attorney general race in California by being practical and not extreme and i think she's got the potential in this race to be closer to the middle than elizabeth warren who is uh smart and has lots of policies but some of her policies turn people off cuz they're expensive
4: mm.
2: Um, Emma Harris leads uh, Biden amongst liberals and whites with college, with a college degree. Why do you think Uncle Joe still has a plurality of African-American votes against her?
4: Um, well, the, the, the theory I've heard that's most persuasive is that the African-American vote, I mean, not that they have one mind, but in general, is considered to be quite um, cautious, and the one thing that they want is someone to get Donald Trump out of the white house and the thing that they've been you know constantly told throughout this campaign is that Biden's the most electable and you know the 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 head to have polling is Biden's the most the one most likely to beat Trump and at the moment that's where they're at now these debates and and polling shifts could well change that um and you know Biden has a long-standing relationship with the African American community, and, and he did a lot of work. I mean he he made some very bad mistakes both on that stage and in the history of his career. But the general thrust of his career has been very good on civil rights, and that shouldn't be forgotten. Um, and the, the worst part about Biden running now is if he doesn't win the nomination and therefore doesn't get a chance to go beyond this campaign, and this campaign is the last thing he does really in public life, it would be a shame because what this campaign is going to do is beat up Biden's reputation a bit. Um, uh, And that's another reason why him running might have been a mistake. Unless he absolutely had it sewn up, and he didn't, and doesn't, um, then I think he's damaging what could have been a less tarnished legacy.
2: Doug, last question to you before we move on to the uk how strident should harris warren and sanders be and maybe mayor pete if we can still include him in in this race right now how strident should they be in terms of blue on blue attacks when it comes to taking down old uncle joe
3: well i think that the way senator harris did it during the debate was probably at about the right level It was respectful, but it was clear it included facts. You're not a racist. Yeah. And that's good. Um, The way Sanders attacked Clinton during the primary and in some ways even in the general election campaign did a lot of damage. He did a lot to circulate or help spread the negative messages about Clinton. And I think we need to avoid that. Focus on the policy differences. I mean, Sanders' policies are at an extreme left. Warren is almost there. Um, Buttigieg is somewhere in the middle. Harris is in the middle. Biden's a little bit to the right of the middle. We've got genuine policy differences, and that's what they should really be focusing on.
4: Yeah, I agree with that
2: on that note. Uh, let's go over to the other side of the pond to view the disunited kingdom.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
2: A panel-based poll in the Sunday Times Scotland last weekend found support for independence would jump to 53% if Boris Johnson
5: became Prime Minister, giving the Yes campaign a clear six-point lead. Indeed, and that, that same uh, polling exercise showed support for independence in general up at uh, 49% within the margin of but that would give. So but that is, would give you a clear lead. This, this is increasing things, but let's just be clear, there is no good Tory Prime Minister for Scotland, and neither of the two candidates that are up there at the moment uh, would do harm. We know that uh, we heard Jeremy Hunt the other day saying that he'd be willing to sacrifice businesses who rely on the EU. And that was uh, something he said. And we've seen Boris Johnson's uh, view on uh, on uh, the way that uh, we, we need to take these things forward in an equally abhorrent way. So there is no good Tory Prime Minister for Scotland. We've been ignored all the way through the Brexit process. People in Scotland are very alive to that. Since the 62% of the people voted Remain, um, we've seen all the, all the way through the process. Scottish government ignored, Scottish Parliament ignored, MPs ignored, and all the way down. So Scotland knows it's being ignored. Right, but do you accept? But do
2: you accept you'd have a much greater chance of winning another
5: well, independence referendum? Well, well, yeah. I mean, I think we've got a much better chance of winning an independence referendum anyway. That's what I'm saying because of what people have seen. It's put things into sharp focus about the way that Westminster. And I've got to say, in particular, the Tories. Um, just don't care about uh, Scotland at all. And we've seen that all the way through this process. Right, and that is part of the reason, or even the whole reason, for that lead in that poll. I know there's a health
2: warning with polls, but even so, does that concern you, that actually, with Boris Johnson as Prime Minister, you risk the union? England voted for Brexit by 53.4%. Wales voted for Brexit and to leave by 52.5%. Scotland and Northern Ireland both back staying in the EU. With Scotland back and remain by six by a whopping sixty two percent, whilst in Northern Ireland it was fifty five point eight percent. Let's call that fifty six percent for the sake of argument. Emma, are we going to have a country called the United Kingdom by the end of this Brexit process? Number one, <laughs> then number two, why? Oh, why are our Scottish brethren so? up for, and cuddly and warm for the EU?
4: Let's deal with that
2: that question first.
4: Why Why are Scots in favour of the EU? Yeah. I mean, it, there's kind of a weird um, dichotomy in the Scottish politics at the moment, which says, we really want to be part of this bigger union that massively helps our economy, um, and helps us culturally, and that we feel a great affinity to. Scotland... Um, in many ways feels quite uh, an affinity to Northern Europe, um, not least in climate. Um, but so, and, and that has been a big, a big part of the Scottish um, belief. They also see the EU as protecting them from um, English Toryism. Uh, and they, in many ways, this is a, you know, we, we know that the EU... And that the regulations that we get from the EU will stop us being ravaged by um, the rampaders of uh, free market capitalism like Boris Johnson. Now, the dichotomy comes because if you try to make any of those arguments to some of the exact same people, not all of them, but some of the exact same people, about staying in the United Kingdom, i.e. it's a trading union that gives you freedom of movement within these countries, uh, and is your it means that you have no customs friction with your nearest neighbouring country, they would reject that premise utterly and tell you that Scottish should be an independent country. So there is a, a real dichotomy there. Um, but to answer your first question, mm-hmm. I mean, the question isn't, will we have a United Kingdom by the end of the Brexit process? The question is, what is the end of the Brexit process? Um, what does that mean? When does Brexit end? Because I don't think Brexit is a date that we're going to reach or a final decision that I, we're going to I make. I thought
2: you were about to say Brexit doesn't mean Brexit. <laughs> well, Brexit <laughs> I mean, who knows what
4: Brexit means? That's the point. You know, All right. uh, even okay. if Brexit means no deal, that's not the end of the process. That's just another step.
2: Mm-hmm. All right. Let's say it's 2030. Doug, do we have a United Kingdom... And does it matter if we don't?
3: I think it's going to be looking a bit different. And I think it's too soon to say whether it matters, because I think the status of the rest of the EU is going to be in play. If Brexit happens, the really, are you sure, Doug?
2: The one thing that Brexit Uh, this whole Brexit process is underlined to me is that all of those parties that are Eurosceptic in France, in Italy, in Poland, etc., have all wound their necks in a little and aren't
3: shouting so loud to exit the EU. I don't think anybody else wants to exit the EU, but I think that there's going to be enough disarray in the economy. Plus, if the current global trend continues being driven by the US president, I think you're going to see new alliances form. So you may find um, the power shifting from Western Europe to potentially other regions. So the EU will have less holding it together.
4: I, I, I would disagree with that, I think. Um, I think one of the things that is going to bring the EU closer together is the fact that we are, there are now three key other poles. There's the US, who knows what's going to happen with that, but at the moment it's increasingly insular, protectionist and illiberal. You've got China, expansionist, illiberal, authoritarian. And there's Russia, which is not expansionist except on its own borders. Um, Very, very um, led by oligarchs and undemocratic. What unites Europe, most of it, and a majority of it, even in the places where they've elected fairly right-wing governments, is a sense of still wishing to be a democracy, even if one or two patches like, say, Hungary are now describing themselves as an illiberal democracy. A sense of liberal democracy and a sense of Europe being stronger together as a bastion of that and of protecting those values together still exists. Um, And I think pushes people in Europe closer together because the threat isn't just coming from one direction anymore. Mm. Um, Emma, that
2: just occurred to me whilst you were giving your answer that what we could actually end up having is an EU, which is actually the EU that the Brexiteers said they always wanted before they became Brexiteers, which was an EU which was multipolar in terms of the speed of integration, that you can be associated with the EU, um, but there isn't going to be no EU army you don't have to join up to the to the common currency etc cetera, etc cetera. we're going to have this multi speed eu aren't we we're going to have our polands and our Hungaries on on one fringe kind of doing their own own thing and cocking a snook uh cock, cocking a finger sorry to uh, to brussels but actually still having freedom of movement of of workers then you you potentially you could have a britain which is as liberal as the other major democracies but um, emotionally is is much more detached. And then you have the kind of the core rump, don't you? You have your Hollands and your Belgiums and your Germanys and whatever are all singing Kumbaya together.
4: isn't that that's exactly- what we've always had. Honestly, the, the lies that are told about what we have now is so much nonsense. That is generally what we've always had. Like, we don't have an EU army. The Eurozone is one thing, and there are too many countries that opted into the Eurozone that shouldn't have done um, and that that and that's a different mistake, but it is a different mistake from the EU. But be
2: honest, be honest, right? When we decided not to enter the eurozone, would you have been one of these um, people on the left that says, "Let's ditch the pound, let's have the euro"? I probably would have been. And probably,
4: I, and, and... I, I, I remember thinking that sounds quite nice, but I don't remember. I never, I never banged a drum about it. I've never written mm. monetary policy uh, and fiscal policy is not something that I pretend to know more about than I do and whether or not we should change our currency. I don't, I'm not emotionally attached to the pound with the queen's head on it, but on the other hand, I don't, you know, I'm not attached to the Euro either. It's quite nice not to change your money when you go to France. That's the end. I mean, from (laughs) this side
3: of things, the Euro has seemed to be a fairly remarkable uh, engine of trade. It is simplified interactions in a way that a lot of us couldn't have imagined
4: it has um but if you're greece it doesn't feel like that from Mm. from from that perspective so that when i say it's not that the euro in itself in and of itself is a bad thing it's that too many people went into it too quickly and without it properly and and it was too driven by those countries who were stronger and had more had economies that aligned better
2: Mm. And, and yes uh, exactly if you're greece portugal spain to a lesser degree italy to a lesser degree uh the euro has been uh, something to slightly to chafe under and that's before you even mention romania and bulgaria as well um lastly uh, the other
4: thing of course is that on. if we end up having sort of digital and cryptocurrencies the eu will just be seen as a tiny blip in history uh, so the, the euro uh
2: Very true. But there are are moves against um, expanding kind of cryptocurrencies right now. And who knows where all that's going to go. But very last question before we move on, because uh, I know somebody needs to go to the theatre. As
4: always. Sorry, guys. (laughs) uh, That's
2: all right. That's all right. It puts a certain amount of energy into the show, knowing that we've only got 45 (laughs) minutes. So I thank you for that. Doug, uh, Boris Johnson at the moment is bigging up the union. In his Mail on Sunday column, he attempted to play up his union's credentials by pledging to change the Prime Minister's official title uh, to add minister for the union. And then Jeremy Hunk also said, properly done, Brexit will not threaten the union. However, one out of six members of the Tory party are actually based in Scotland. Um, and the
4: majority of them would happily trash Scotland the Union over Brexit.
2: Mm-hmm. Exactly, which is what you said in, in, our, in our last yeah. uh, Mid-Atlantic. Um, so Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt, the two prospective leaders of the Tory party and hence the next Prime Minister, need to address Scotland. Um, Doug, this might sound like a, a hard question for you to answer, considering you're sat in sunny California, and I know you've got that, your Hawaiian shirt on at the moment. Why don't the Scots
3: like Boris? I don't think the Scots are going to like anybody telling them what to do. They would like to just kind of keep doing their own thing, if I'm understanding things correctly. Uh, They've actually been able to do their own economic development over the years. They have manufacturing. They have trade with a lot of other countries. Brexit is um, not necessarily uh, helping
2: them. Um, Emma, uh, same question to you. Why don't the Scots like a bumbling, Etonian-sounding Tory from south of the border?
4: Well, can I say, I've never lived further north than Tottenham and I don't like him either. Um, (laughs) But uh, uh, it's not just Boris Johnson, it's the kind of Toryism he represents, which is a very English, playing schools of Eton, colonialism was great toryism that the scots and particularly scots Nats who you know feel that they are colonized uh chafe under um and even those scots who want to retain the union which is a majority but it's not a huge majority um don't particularly have like Um, people from the south of England telling them what to do in their very different economy uh, and their very different way of life
2: Is their economy very different and is their way of life very different? I tell you the one thing right that travelling as much as I do has taught me is that we live in concentric rings of cultural difference and when I go to Scotland it's a bit different but it still feels like the United Kingdom
4: I think if you go to Edinburgh or if you go to Glasgow, yeah, it's a big city. It feels like a big city. That's probably true if you go to San Francisco or Seattle. Um, But there are cultural undertones that were absolutely massively heightened during the 80s um, where the the economy of Scotland – Scotland brought in a lot of money through North Sea Oil and a lot of that money didn't then get replayed back into Scotland. And that has had a cultural rebounding that we're still feeling now.
2: Um, I don't don't know, Emma, how much of that is actually fact or myth. But what I do know is that you need to get yourself along to the theatre. So I'm going to call time on this section of the show and go to takeaways of the week. Okay, (laughs) It's that time where we talk very quickly about uplifting the human spirit, things that have made us uh, marvel and smile about the human condition. Doug, over to you. You go first.
3: We've got the 50th anniversary of the landing on the moon coming up this month. And one of the coolest things that I have heard of in a long time is that the folks at NASA have recreated the original mission control and uh it is a, apparently a spectacular site and one of the original uh controllers visited it and uh, described just being in tears seeing what had become kind of a dust heap uh brought back to the state that it was 50 years ago when this historic mission happened
2: goodness um how about you emma
4: uh, so I think for me, I want to talk about how amazing the response to the World Cup for women has been in terms of the football. Um, the, uh, you know it, It's finally being recognised as a game just as good as the men's game in its own right. It's had the same kind of coverage, the same kind of you know, people stopping in the streets to talk about it, people stopping in the streets to watch it. Um, and if we could only recognise that in the salaries of the players, that would be amazing too. Um, but I do feel like, finally, women's football is almost being seen on a par with men's football, which uh, is great because it should be.
2: Uh, you've kind of ruined my takeaway of the week, which was not going to be too dissimilar to that. So, so, so thank you. For that.: <laughs> oh, and also but,
4: congratulations to the USA. Well done, guys.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, my takeaway of the week. You can't
4: see, but I'm doing a tea-sipping <laughs> celebration. Ah, well
2: done you. Well done you. Um my takeaway of the week is um I saw a film called Beats on um on Netflix and it's this it's um it's Evan J. Simpson who is one of the stars of it, who plays a school security guard, who um finds himself doing that because he's a somewhat of a failed music producer. And, um, he, he's in Chicago and he finds this student who doesn't go to school who is an amazing producer. It's a somewhat uneven performance in terms of a film. Um, but it's incredibly heartwarming. And I have this thing of, uh, men finding each other and being able to communicate with each other, um, in a world where they feel all kind of at sea. So you have two uh, protagonists, uh, the young teenage boy who literally does not leave his bedroom but creates this amazing music, and then the school security guard that needs to drag him to school that realises that he has this, this great talent. So it's called Beats, It's not perfect. It's not going to win any awards. Uh, but in terms of um, looking at uh, black men, in inner city Chicago, but also telling a heartwarming story of um, music, but also of love. Um, it has a lot to commend it. So, Beat on, on Netflix, go watch that. Uh, Emma, how can people find you on social media?
4: I'm Emma Bernal underscore on Twitter.
3: Doug, how about you? I am on Twitter at sfdoug. Oh, and can I just say, actually,
2: I just did a conference in New York, Intelligent Speech, um, at the Centre for Social Innovation. It went really well. Um, I'm both inviting you next year to come and speak at it. Um, it, I had 110 people turn up. If you can't physically turn up, we can definitely do something via Skype. You know how much
4: I love New York, so that sounds like a great thing.
2: (laughs) Well, listen, Emma, I would love to have you there. Um, I had some 20 speakers, 110 guests that turned up Um, thank you for everybody that turned up and thank you for the people that actually said to me and bumped into me said Roy Ford I love Mid-Atlantic it's kind of great and also said I love Map Corner Um, made me kind of realise that you know you you do this thing you talk into a microphone it kind of feels like you're just playing but actually you are actually uh, informing and entertaining uh, real people uh, throughout the world so thank you for the people that turned up to my intelligent speech conference in New York last week you can find us on social media if you can be bothered and if you want to post anything at Mid Atlantic Show. You can go to the website and go and find all of the old back episodes. Um, this has been Doug, this has been Emma, and this has been me, Roy Field, saying goodbye toodaloo. Take care, be good to each other. Bye bye.